I want to welcome everybody again today to our uh, webinar, and today we're going to talk about climate change and cover crops. What is the cover crop coach's perspective? And I, uh, as I kind of alluded to in promoting this here, I fully understand when you say the word climate change that it can mean one thing very passionately for some people, and it can mean something else very passionately for other people. And when it really comes down to that whole uh, topic and why people are passionate about it on, I'll just say, either side, it really comes down to the question, is climate change human-caused um, it, or what is it? What what is human caused in climate change, and what is not? Is it primarily human caused, or is humans barely have any effect on it? And um, it's a fair question, and I think that's where a lot of the debate centers around. And then the other question that I had to bring up is exactly do, what does cause climate change and what actually caused climate change when there were significantly less humans? I think it's a fair question to ask in the context of what we know today. And then kind of really what we're getting at here in a, in a practical basis here, what can or should I do about it? And because we each have our little metrons that we've influenced, and then very specifically, how do cover crops influence climate change. And I think that's really comes down to the nuts and bolts of this issue. And so I just want to be clear up front more where I'm coming from. And I also just really want to strongly put this disclaimer out. We are not going to debate uh, uh, this issue from a political standpoint. Because I know it would probably uh, there'd be there'd be a, there'd be a lot of opinions out here about it. What I will say is, just so you know where I'm coming from, I certainly do believe that humans have influenced the climate. Um, I would probably come out, or I should say, I would come out on the opinion that there's it's it's probably not as much as some people would like us to believe. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. I think there's, I think on the other hand, I'm doing more about actually mitigating CO2 emissions with the way I farm and the way I sequester carbon than most people out there. When I say we, I'm talking about as agriculture in farming. So that's, that's where I come out. Um, and, um, just because I'm leading this discussion, I thought you, you would like to know, uh, where that is and, you know, we can talk about it later sometime about the specifics. But here I want to share a little bit of uh, my story. Uh, I do remember, I do remember in the mid-70s talking, the talk about global cooling and the predictions about what may occur. And so, so I remember that. I'm 53 years old and was old enough to remember it um, back then when I was in uh, early teens. In the mid-90s, kind of the global warming started to come to, to light, and uh, I'm not going to dwell on this a whole lot. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, the verbiage then somewhat changed, I would say, uh, specifically to the, using the words climate change. And now 
we've kind of got this uh, almost a hot potato here. And I just uh, wrote down here, it's so now there's almost, in, in some senses, there's fake news about fake news. And what was interesting is I looked into this topic, and I kind of went back and tried to see some of the literature, what was posted back in the, actually going back into the 50s, and how you have uh, various groups saying, well, that, that never occurred, or that what, when that statement about global cooling was made, that was, you know, just, uh, it was actually not true. And uh, so it was kind of amusing to me because then I also saw a lot of other support that actually showed newspaper articles, multiple newspaper articles talking about global cooling and so forth. And then it just seemed like there's a shift to global warming later on. So uh, I think what uh, as, as we look into this and, you know, talk about temperatures rising, um, certainly is. There's been a lot of models out there that show that. I would have to say, too, there are some other models that don't show it as strongly or show a different type of a trend. And just the way the data is collected, all I'm saying is uh, let's just be careful sometimes in this whole thing to what degree and who is right and what's the agenda uh, behind what they're trying to do. Uh, it was interesting to me that I visited, some of you know, I've mentioned this a couple times, I visited Tangier Island in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. And um, Tangier Island is literally, the highest point is four feet above sea level. And when I was talking to some of the fishermen down there, um, they they have stated, and, I, and I'm just going to put it out there for what it is, um, but this particular, uh, this is their crab shack, as they call it. And um, uh, some of these crab shacks have been here for over 50 years. Uh, they're telling me that they have not noticed sea level rise, um, at least as significant as some either have said is occurring or I think this is maybe more as much as some people said 15 years ago would occur. So it just, I think it just, Again, this is just kind of farmer to fisherman talk here. Um, and I know, you know, you can probably bring up numbers of what actually is happening. I w- I'm just I'm just saying from my perspective, let's be careful with some of the euphoria out here uh, in that. But that's my perspective. Now, my experience has been this. In 2011, I was in China, in Chengdu, China. Chengdu, China, is where your iPad was made. Um, and if you look at the top of this picture, that's the sun. This was a clear day. Uh, I couldn't even see clouds. I couldn't even see a blue sky. But because I saw this blob up there all day, I assumed there was no clouds. I was there for one week, and... Um, this was dramatic to me to experience this. I uh, just took a picture here of a, um, a car. This was the overnight particulate that settled out. Every morning they went through the streets with water to keep the dust down from the overnight particulate that fell on the, uh, on the streets. Uh, 
So, when we ask the question, has human activity influenced the climate? I'm going to say absolutely yes, it has. So, I, you know, just experiencing that to me was, uh, wow, this really does exist in some parts of the world. And it took me one week after arriving home till, till my lungs actually got cleared out. And I'll just leave it at that. But, um, that was, that was a very interesting experience there. And, uh, kind of to support this whole thing that there's no doubt about it that humans have influenced the, the climate to one degree or another. Now coming back home to the States here, this is the picture that was taken this past Monday, two days ago. Of Lake Erie, are we affecting the climate? Now, in this case here, I'm I'm not just saying the air quality here. We're talking about the climate. We're talking about um, you know beyond uh, just air and so forth, but actually where you know the the, the area that we're involved in, and that's um, a green lake there. That's not the name of the lake. That's Lake Erie, but it's green. That's not good. What is causing that? And I think agriculture certainly has a role in it. Um, and I, I know we had all agreed not all of the, the issue here is with agriculture, but agriculture certainly has a role in this. What can we do about that? Um, well, I'm just going to start by saying that green lakes are not good. Green fields are good. And uh, this is just a picture of my local area in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Uh, the fall of 2015 was a really nice fall. A lot of cover crops got planted. I took uh, a, a friend of mine as an airplane, and we uh, flew around and took pictures of it. So this is these, this is the first week of December. Uh, you can see how green that is, and there's a lot. It's not all cover crops. Some is forage, and some would be alfalfa, like for hay, and some of the cover crops would be used as forage. But the point is, the point is, there's something growing in those fields. And because we are situated in the Chesapeake Bay, we have been under the microscope, so to speak, for 20 years or more. And because of that, this definitely is some of the result, the awareness of needing to clean up the bay. And uh, I will say that when I was at the Chesapeake Bay, with those pictures I just showed you a while back here, the fishermen said that they the bay is getting cleaner. Uh, not everywhere, but significant portions so much that they're catching their limits quicker and their seasonal catch is higher with their crabs and oysters and such. So I feel that we are making a difference here in that, uh, in that aspect here. I'm including that in this discussion of the climate. Um, obviously, public perception is is important to what we do in agriculture. And I just feel that we have a message here to share with the general public what we are doing to be able to impact the climate and even impact uh, climate change, as it were. Uh, one of the things that I feel deserves more attention is this statement here that green fields or where living plants are equals more rain. I read about a study on this, uh, about, and it's, it's, it's somewhat anecdotal, but we're an area that they actually regreened or intentionally planted and managed 
a fairly large area. And uh, years afterwards, they started picking up more rain in that area. I asked my uh, cousin, who works for AccuWeather, uh, if he, as a meteorologist, felt or knew that where you have more growing green plants, if that can actually help stimulate more rain. And he said, it's not even a question. The answer is yes, it can. So um, it kind of goes against the whole idea of fallow, which I think most of us on here would agree that uh, fallow is, is really not an option. Um, that being said, there's a lot of places on this earth, unfortunately, have been farmed out or not not treated correctly, and they don't have enough plants there that it has indeed affected the climate. And this is where I feel with cover crops, which is what we're talking about here, what our group is focused on, we have a story to tell and we have a solution. And uh, it's not the total solution, but it's something that we in this group can do something about. I feel we can make a difference in being able to reduce CO2 emissions. And um, so the agricultural component in all this, when we talk about cover crops and climate change, is that CO2 emissions is a common factor associated with climate change. That's I know there's some other things as well. Um, but uh, so we acknowledge that. Also acknowledge that tillage causes CO2 emissions because we open up the soil, the carbon is oxidized and goes up into the atmosphere. But the cool thing about it is um, <clears throat> that with cover crops or with plants, we can sequester carbon into back into the soils. We can do that beyond what cash crops can accomplish. And I think this is important to know when we're talking to people that this is a talking point, if you will, when you if you're if you're discussing climate change, you can say, hey, car, cover crops are sequestering carbon. That's a fact. That's not arguable. That's a fact. So that's good. And even beyond all the other benefits that cover crops give each of us farmers, we are also, I feel, benefiting society. We're benefiting this world that we live in um, by keeping something growing in our soil. Well, how does that look? on our farms. I'll um, just give you my farm for example. Uh, as I have tracked my organic matter over the past 30 or so years, uh, we basically well more than doubled organic matter from 2% in 1985 to 5.5% in 2015 when I tested every single one of my fields. So that's a very good number right there. So um, we've made a difference, and that's the way we can measure the carbon that is sequestered into our soil. So I, uh, <clears throat> with some of the, uh, I guess you'd say, equations that Dr. Ray Weil had given about what a percent of organic matter equates to carbon sequestrations, I figured out that on my little 250 acres here, I'm offsetting emissions of about 500 cars each year or break it down to about two cars per acre. So because of cover crops, because of no tillage, actually I am, I like to say I am offsetting some of the pollution that is occurring. Um, so obviously 
uh, cars and our vehicles, our motors that we use are getting better in emitting CO2. Matter of fact, just last week I was uh, uh, on a speaking engagement. I rented a car, and I'll just say it was a hybrid Ford uh, Ford Fusion four door, so mid sized car, thirty eight mile a gallon. It was pretty cool with the fuel tank uh, filling it up. Yeah, and only paying a couple dollars. Uh, so the the progress we have made in carbon emissions is certainly it, uh, noteworthy in the automobile industry and, and our tractors and everything else. But by being able to use cover crops, we're offsetting some of that. And, uh, you know, obviously we're probably not as a society going to give up our transportation that we have now, but offsetting that is important. So that's where I feel that cover crops really do fit in here in, in a tangible way. So what can farmers do? <clears throat> what can they do to potentially affect climate change? I think it's simply stated that cover crops are maybe the most economical and effective means of sequestering CO2. And, of course, that's beyond growing our other crops, our cash crops. Uh, so it's uh, another reason, I would have to say, to to use cover crops. The other thing, too, I'll just mention a little bit, uh, we probably all well know, well-managed grazing. And I key word there is well-managed. Well-managed grazing. There's, there's probably, uh, it's a, it's a, there's, it's a minority of what's well-managed versus just straight grazing. Uh, just driving around the countryside, I see way too many fields or pastures that are, look like a golf course. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about well-managed uh, in that, and also plant diversity, by being able to have plant diversity, which again cover crops are in that crop rotations, expand them out, all that helps to be able to sequester more uh, carbon into the soil, and then less or even no tillage, uh, where we don't release that carbon back into the uh, to the atmosphere. But there's another angle on this that I want to uh, bring up here. Uh, that is a reality, and regardless of what you think causes climate change, the reality of it is there are major retailers, major corporations that are uh, essentially trying to, I'll just say on one hand, do their part, but also looking for a story. Uh, and what I mean by that is to try to tell their customers this is what they are doing to benefit the environment, the climate, or whatever. So all of these listed here, Walmart, General Mills, Wrangler, Whole Foods, Blue Apron, Unilever, all of those top there I have had personal experience with. It's not something I read about. I've been on a conference call with Walmart talking about using cover crops, incentivizing cover crops. I've met uh, the, the, the person from General Mills who is a head of their sustainability department. I met the personal person from Wrangler Jeans who's saying they want to be able to tell their customers that their farmers grow cotton with cover crops and are using soil health principles. That was amazing to me uh, to, to meet that, meet that man and hear that story. I grow for Whole Foods. I grow for Blue Apron, the vegetables I grow. They all are, are, are using um, sustainability and environmental responsibility in their marketing program. I'm involved with 
promoting some of that, especially with Blue Apron. I talked with the Unilever person who is in charge of sustainability and and uh, just responsibly grown way to grow things. It's coming. It may not be directly right now with your typical corn and soybean grower. It's a little bit more inclined to uh, the more the food industry, but the feed industry is not far behind. And so I think that this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for us in agriculture, whether you're a farmer or whether you're a trainer, uh, whoever you are, to say, hey, uh, regardless of what you think about climate change uh, and what's impacting it, we're doing the right thing in this whole cover crop soil health movement. Uh, and, and hey, if it, it, again, you can use this way of growing thing, growing our food, growing our fiber as a way to tell a story. People are looking for a story, especially in this day, day and age of social media. So um, I think that we have a very compelling and very simple story, by the way, to tell. And uh, it's not hard for me when people ask what cover crops do. And I'm living in a Chesapeake Bay here. Is I simply say when they say what so what are these cover crops all about? I say, well, we're keeping the nitrates out of the Chesapeake Bay. And with that one sentence, I immediately become almost a hero in their minds of doing the right thing. And so it's a very compelling story and also a very practical one that actually I feel does something about this whole issue of climate change. So I'm just going to summarize here. So get your questions ready. I'm going to open up all the lines here. Uh, so if you have questions regarding this issue, this topic today, uh, either type them in the chat or, um, or you can, you can speak it, but I'm just going to summarize this because this to me captures everything I just shared in the last 20 minutes. Regardless of the degree that humans influence climate change, a cropping system that includes living roots year-round, if possible, that is, reduced or no tillage, as much as possible, and species diversity, and again, I'm a farmer, so I'm going to say as much as possible, is probably going to do as much to limit and offset carbon emissions as any other industrial sector in the world. So I feel if we apply these principles, literally around the globe, we could really make a difference. And it's not just about climate change. I feel it's also about farm viability, farm sustainability, um, kind of hedging against weather extremes, uh, which, you know, we have to mention. So there's a lot of reasons why cover crops can be considered a keystone of helping to mitigate effects of climate change. So, um, yeah, any of you have any questions uh, about this topic, uh, feel free to speak up. It's always good if you identify yourself, where you're from. Uh, that way it helps us understand a little bit where what your location might be. So uh, are there any questions or, or comments uh, that you have on this? And I'm open to if you disagree in some fashion. I will say we're not going to get into debate, but I'm just going to say that uh, – uh, feel free to uh, either ask or comment. So who, who's going to be first?
Anybody? Don't be shy. Any comments? Hey, Steve. Yeah. This is uh, Jen yes. Nelson. Yep. I I was going to ask, um, as far as your experience or, or your observations with the more extreme weather um, and how that's changed over the same period of time that you talked about. Right. Well, I, I see that as a um, – I'll answer that. I'll answer it two ways, and it's kind of like the the background of of everything I said here. Uh, certainly, we've had more extreme weather. I think you could list that to probably uh, worldwide. And uh, so, from a climate change perspective, the question is: it comes back to I think what was human caused and what is just I'll just say natural uh, the evolution of you know, our climate, whatever that may be. But regardless of, of what caused it, uh, extreme weather events in the last 20 years, we'll say, cover crops and soil health is your answer, um, at least for us defending against that. And I've seen that clearly on my farm and many farms around. It doesn't mean it keep isolates you from, you know, that you're, you're never going to need water, you're never going to be too wet. Um, so, uh, I'm not, if you're asking what, if I'm acknowledging extreme weather, yes. Uh, what, where I'm coming from is regardless of what caused the extreme weather, cover crops are either, I'll say the answer or, uh, to, to overall climate change, or they're a way to defend what we are experiencing right now to be, have more resilient soil. So, did I did I kind of capture what you're asking, or did I not quite get that right? No, I um I was curious just because I think sometimes talking to farmers, it's easier to approach this issue from a perspective of extreme weather than it is necessarily climate change. Sure. Um, just you know because people can talk about their observations mm-hmm. and and what they've experienced mm-hmm. over time, and you know I agree with what you're saying that kind of regardless um, of what you think those causes are or, you know, that, that these are good um, management strategies to deal with that. But I think I was just asking if you had definitely seen um, kind of an uptick in, in extreme weather, especially when it comes to rainfall and that kind of thing. Yeah, I would say, I would say I've, I've experienced that, more from other places and actually here where I live in southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, I, but from what I hear, I'll just mention here too, you'll be interested in knowing this. Uh, typically, uh, American farmers, uh, would probably, the, the, the whole, the thing of climate change is, is very debatable. When I was in Australia, there was essentially no debate. Everyone thought that China was causing all the dryness in, in Australia. I mean, that's what I heard more and more time and time again. It's China. China's really screwing up our weather, uh, which I don't know. It could be exactly. It could be true. You, you saw my pictures of what I showed. But it was interesting that there's a there's a different approach to this issue in Australia, at least the farmers that I I was with. So that could be political. Um, and I get that part. Uh, but uh, whatever reason, it was interesting to to hear that dynamic there. So 
yeah, other people, do you have questions or comments? Steve, this yeah. is Charles. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. I was just going to say that was a great and very practical um, addressment of the issue of climate change. And as a father of three kids going to urban public school system, we have to be yeah. cautious all the time about what they're learning and bringing home from school. Sure. And um, I appreciate you tackling that question. Thank you. Anyone else have uh, questions, comments, disagreements? Okay. Um, well, again, I appreciate hey, your. Um, hey, Steve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Excuse me. This is Dan Lazinski um, with the NRCS in Indiana. Yeah. I may have missed what, what you said. Where did you um, get your data that you think that you're doing your car ratio to acres of cover crops? On the emissions? Yeah, I got that from a, 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 a conversation with Dr. Ray Weil. Um, and, and I will have to say, I'm not going to post this out there as absolute fact, but he was, uh, and, and again, I don't have the formulas in front of me. I can look that up, but it was, a, it was in the context of, uh, basing it off the amount and weight of carbon in a given, in a given, uh, area. And kind of uh, running the numbers based on the uh, the increased carbon levels in the soil. So, do you have uh, another opinion or uh, how to do that? No, I do not. I think I just missed part of that for a second. Right. I, I kind of got in late and. Yep. Actually, uh, I'm going to write that down, Dan. I'll post it on the Facebook group. Um, uh, that would be a great talking point for us to be able to. Yeah. Yeah. Take to the farmers if that actually is. I mean, we've had Dr. Wild in Indiana present before. I know he's got a lot of good information and material. He's been doing a lot of studies, yeah. but we could get some information yep. on that. I think it would be awesome to be able to yeah. talk to farmers about this. Okay. Yeah. I, I wrote it down here. Um, sometimes he's a little hard to get a hold of if he's traveling, but I'll, I'll get right on that. I'll, I'll do that. So that's great. Great comment. Thank you. Yep. Anybody else? Steve, okay. this is Mike Hubbs. Yes, go Tennessee. ahead, Mike. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, I would I would like to um, talk about your your uh, AccuWeather, where you talked about green fields are yeah. causing more rainfall. Yeah. Uh, scientifically, I could see that where we are literally seeing the first year, second year, and especially the third year of going cover crops where it's been long-term no-till. That we're going from maybe two inches per hour infiltration to as much as six to eight and as mm-hmm. high as 12 inches per hour. Mm-hmm. Is it because there's more water in the soil that is increasing the, with the water table instead of running off that is increasing the rainfall, you think? Or? Well, based on what you told me, I would think the soil is in better condition to be able to, I'll just say, accept the rain, to, to infiltrate the rain. Uh, again, going back to Australia, uh, a, a dry climate, they use the term, they want to build a bigger bucket in the soil, meaning they want to capture every drop of rain that falls in the sky and hold it there as long as possible. So what I was more referring to was actual increased precipitation that can occur over a general area. This isn't going to happen over one farm. Uh, does it, does it require you know, a hundred square miles. I don't know. I just read a very interesting article 
uh, about this, and, and right now I don't have the uh, information. Actually, I'm going to jot that down uh, here to maybe get back to you on uh, how, what that was. But, but when I checked with my my uh, cousin, uh, who, who's a meteorologist, he, he's, he actually kind of knew about that and wasn't just what he thought. Uh, and it does, I mean, just from a non uh, meteorological person like me, I really don't know how everything works. It would make sense that, um, you know, plants could help, you know, attract rain maybe in the, it's, it's all about the cycle of, of water evaporation. Again, I'm, I better not say anything else. I'll get lost, but, uh, but, uh, I might try to follow yeah. up on that, Mike, but I think what I was talking about okay. was actually increased pre- precipitation over an annual, uh, a year's time. Yeah, and what I was trying to do is explain it, I guess, with more water in the soil by infiltration. Correct. You'd have more yes. opportunity, I guess, the buckets you're talking about, yep. more evaporation yep. and more water cycle. Yes, that, that indeed, I think, is, I would say that's a fact. Uh, what I suggested, I can't say is a fact. It's a theory at this point, but, you know, since we're all promoting cover crops, I, I think it'll be a benefit once the world gets greener, uh, hopefully. So, um, anyway, that's just my thoughts. Does anyone else have an opinion on that? Uh, yeah, can you hear me all right? I can. Yeah, well, it, it kind of makes sense in my mind that, like, you know, before we all started farming and plowing everything up, that naturally there's a lot of stuff growing everywhere. So, I mean, if you kind of returned it to the, the way that was, it would make sense to me anyway that you'd have, you know, a better right. ecosystem. Right, right. So, yeah, this is big picture thinking here, but, hey, let, let's – we all do what we can. This is what this is why we're part of this group, to – to be a spark plug for this kind of innovation. And, uh, and that's one thing I so much enjoy about being a part of this cover crop movement. It's a good thing. We're in, we're doing the right thing. And, you know, by the way, we can actually, as farmers, we don't have to lose money over it. It's, I think it's going to create a stronger, more stable, sustainable operation. Yes, there's many challenges. We get that. That's why we're talking here. But to me, I just feel I just feel like we're part of a good movement that's doing uh, literally the world a lot of good. So great comments. Uh, just pause for a second. Anybody else have uh, something on the tip of their tongue? Okay, we're going to transition now to uh, to uh, the uh, next part of our conversation about you can ask any cover crop question you want, any specific question, observation. But I want to say that next week we're going to talk about how to grow your own cover crop seed legally. And I put that last word in there because there's a few guidelines you need to be aware of and need to understand. Um, I'm certainly all for farm, uh, I'll just say grown cover crop seed. But there are some things we need to know. So I'm going to discuss that next week. And um, so that's what we can look forward to. So uh, now um, there's uh, we'll, we'll just open it up to any other question out there. I do see I had one question from Stephanie here that I didn't answer before. Have uh, have I been to locate have I been to locations in the world where uh, I have seen changes in sea level? 
And I'll say I have not. That I'm not an expert on this. Um, so I'm just going to say I have not. I I know there is some places that probably are. I mentioned my experience down the Chesapeake Bay. That's just what I saw. Um, so uh, I don't know if we want to continue discussing that a little bit more. I certainly would be open to it. But I am going to open it up now to anybody who wants to ask any questions about uh, anything you want to in cover crops. And if I don't know the answer, maybe someone on here will. We're looking to it later. So uh, what other cover crop questions do you have today? Who's going to be the first one? Derek, I see you uh, on yeah. yourself. Our experience is uh, in Australia in a dry climate. What were some of their tips in uh, increasing their water use efficiency? Okay, Derek is from Eastern Oregon, right? And uh, uh, yeah, Derek, how many rainfall do you typically get? Because I think I know why you're asking the question. Well, yeah, we so we get ten inches of annual rainfall, and then we also do irrigation, but uh, right, irrigation can be expensive. Yes. To answer your question about what do you do in a dry climate, um, first of all, it is. It is definitely not as easy, and I would say not as quick. And my first point in a dry climate is you've got to be ready when an opportunity presents itself with moisture. Now, for Derek, you do have the option of irrigation, which that, that's, that's helpful, but as you said, it costs something to irrigate. And uh, so that all has to be factored in. I would say... That uh, I'll just give you a, an example from Australia. They were in pretty much a multi-year drought, and I was I can show you pictures of cover crops that barely grew, if they grew at all, uh, in some some fields in some situations. They just did not get enough rain for it. But then, uh, if you go back to I guess about a year ago or so. A lot of, at least southeastern Australia, got significant and even above normal rainfall. So when that occurs, and I have been keeping track with some of these uh, guys in Australia, I've been there twice, so I've gotten the notice of people. Uh, they they were they were ready to go, ready to get their cover crops in the ground, taking advantage of that moment. That may only happen one in every five or even ten years. But just that one time is adding to the bank account, so to speak, in your fields to accomplish some of this stuff. So I think, you know, this, this, my simple answer is be ready at any, uh, any given opportunity that comes your way while acknowledging that it, it is probably accurate to say it's, it's harder and slower in a dry area to really start seeing the benefits of cover crops. That being said, when you have a long-term uh, objective in mind, if you never start, you'll never accomplish anything. So uh, that's my simple answer. There are no silver bullets other than be ready when that time comes. Have a plan in place uh, that you'll be able to maximize that. And um, so that's my quick answer, Derek, on that. Uh, I don't know if you want to respond with a follow-up, or is there, uh, I don't know, is there, is there anyone else on here that would have any comments uh, on cover crops in dry land areas? 
Well, I got I got a comment about uh, something interesting that I observed this year. Uh, we I have been irrigating a field and uh, it sat fallow for two years because of a drought. We didn't have water for that field. You know, we took the water right from or the water that we got from that and put it on other acres. And uh, so this year we you know we planted it and I've been irrigating it about every week. And it's interesting to note that uh, when you dig down into the soil after a 24-hour set, you only get the water down about 8, 10 inches. Mm -hmm. And so the organic matter content of this ground is about half a percent, and it it just will not take a drink. Well, it'll be interesting to see what your efforts will be in one, two, three, four years from now. I would... I would certainly be pretty uh, hopeful and expect that that's gonna that's gonna only get better over time. And you know, biology takes time. Um, I was in California back in 1999, and um, soil that was filled up, up I would say, started using cover crops. And I asked the question similar to what you said: How much does it cost in water? to grow this cover crop of triticale in their case. It was in front of processing tomatoes. And I forget the number, the dollar value he said, but here he said, look at look at this. I'll show you what the difference is. And the triticale had been killed about three weeks before I was there, so it was all dead and brown. Put a shovel in the ground, and he said, look at all that soil moisture that's holding there. I'm holding it uh, there, which is what you would expect. And then I said, oh, look at that earthworm there. And you would have thought those guys hit the lottery because that was the first earthworm they had saw in their 3,000 acres for 30 years, they claimed. Uh, so they were starting to bring back soil life that they noticed almost in, immediately in the first year. And that was 99. Those guys have continued uh, to present and have been a leader in conservation agriculture. Uh, and it's, it's a slow process. Um, I, I just wouldn't be fair if I wouldn't say it any different. So it'll be interesting to see. I would be interested in keeping tabs of what you're doing out there, Derek, uh, because your question is is probably it's one of the biggest questions that is out there for the for dry land um, dry land cover cropping and soil health. And um, anyone who says it's an easy answer is lying to you, uh, I believe. But uh, there again, I, I firmly believe that little by little you're going to get better. So. It's a juggling act. Well, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Does anyone else have another question? Any other questions about anything at all or comments? Okay. Well, I want to thank you all for uh, joining us today, uh, participating. I would say, too, for those of you who are on Facebook, a lot of things going on over there. I've, uh, I'm gonna try to pick up the pace a little bit. I've been pretty busy here the last couple of weeks, but, uh, uh, you know, asking questions and answering things there. Uh, also just remind us that if you know of anybody who could benefit from this group, just send them to our website, covercropinnovators.com. And also for those of you also just to know, I know I've been mentioning it, uh, in my, uh, promoting of the webinars, but if you want to join early, it's fun to chat about what's going on in your neck of the woods and just to hear a little bit what's happening and who got rain and who didn't and, and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, but anyway, hey, thanks a lot for your participation, your support. 
I look forward to seeing you next week. So um, in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks. Thank you, Steve. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Steve.